Luke chapter 14. I'm sure some of you have, as we read the scripture lessons, thinking, okay, how is this going to go? If you have never read that portion of scripture, it might be a surprise to you. Um, But this is where we are, expository preaching through the gospel according to Luke, and we come to a rather difficult text. We're wrapping up chapter 14, though, this morning. So that's where we are, chapter 14, verses 25 through 35 in your Bibles. Pastor Ricky did a great job last week wrapping up uh, this dinner conversation that Jesus had with the religious people. If you remember, Jesus was invited to the Pharisee, the ruler of the Pharisee, to his home on the Sabbath. And as Pastor uh, Ricky mentioned last week, having dinner, (laughs) having Jesus over dinner is not just dinner, right? It's an opportunity, a, a teaching moment. Jesus uses these moments, these dinner conversations to talk about his mission. How he's calling people to repentance and to faith and to come to him for forgiveness, redemption, and salvation. During these meals, he showed compassion to the, to the downtrodden, to the marginalized, to the, to the rejected of his community. Teaching us also that we must, remember Mary and Martha, we must sit at the feet of Jesus, drinking in the truth of who he is and what he's done before we could serve Jesus. We also know from chapter 14 that these meal conversations and this Sabbath gathering was a way in which the Pharisees tried to lure Jesus in to trap him. And even though these these religious leaders are getting more and more hostile toward Jesus, he, that is Jesus, still went to their home to have dinner with them. That still is amazing to me. It takes this posture of a missionary seeking and saving all people. Things are going to get charged up pretty soon. Things are going to change. The hostility and rejection of the leaders will end as we get to chapter 23 with them crying out, crucify him. We know that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Chapter 9, verse 51, Luke made that clear. Meanwhile, as Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem, he's still demonstrating his kingship, healing diseases, raising the dead, uh, teaching with authority. Crowds are uh, are gathering, and Jesus is intensifying his teaching, what it means concerning, what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple. The year of population, uh, excuse me, popularity is coming to a close. And now we see in this text, after this meal was shared with the Pharisees, the text tells us that Jesus turns to a large crowd that was following him. And, and Jesus, without reservation, any kind of bait and switch, plainly teaches them what what the cost of discipleship really is, what it really means to follow him, what that really looks like. Now, Jesus is not saying, let me just say this up front, Jesus is not saying if you want to be forgiven, if you want to receive the love and the grace of God, you want to be adopted into his family, then you must do these things, then God will love you, God will receive you, God will accept you. That's not what he's saying. If that were the case, salvation is impossible. There's no one in this room, including me, that loves Jesus perfectly every moment of every day. Every one of us falls short of what it means to be a disciple in this passage. So this passage is about not how you become a disciple or we're all in trouble. But what Jesus teaches us will reveal to us whether or not we are a true disciple. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This passage is, is, a, is a warning, a danger, a calling to examine ourselves to see whether we are Christian by name only. 
And Jesus speaks these words not only to give us a full disclosure to those who are being called to be disciples, but he is talking about the very character of a disciple so that you may know whether you have been invited to the banquet, the kingdom of God, which was last week's passage. Chapter 14, verse 23. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways, hedges, and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Verse 24, chapter 14. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So the lingering question is, these religious leaders are not leading us into the banquet. They're not showing us the way of God. What does that look like then? What is our obligation? And Jesus simply says, my disciples will count the cost and put Jesus as their number one love and priority in their lives. And the way I look at this text this morning, which we're going to look at, it, is that we need to understand that being a disciple of Jesus is reorienting all our relationships around the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice with me in verses 26, 27, and 33, Jesus says three times, there are those who cannot be my disciple. You'll see that. Cannot be my disciple. 26, 27, and 33. Second, look at the requirements of those who are his disciples, or those who are following. He says you must hate your family, bear your cross, and renounce your possessions. So these three headings I want to look at this morning really get to the heart of issue, heart of the issue. Yes, we are to hate our families, but what Jesus is trying to get at is your love for him must be far greater than your love for others. Yes, we are to hate our family, but we ought to love him more. We'll get to that. Yes, we must bear our cross. In other words, we are to live out our life in submission to Christ. What, what God is calling us to is not only live our life in submission to Christ, but recognize that suffering and loss will follow. And yeah, we must renounce our possessions, letting go of our stuff. It doesn't mean that we should not have anything, but it does mean that we must yield and surrender, bring everything we have under the lordship to Jesus Christ. So loving Jesus, living for Jesus, and letting go for Jesus. It's about relationships. Number one, living for Jesus. I think I have water here. Okay. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, hate his mother, hate his wife, hate his children, brothers and sisters, yes, even hate his own life. That, 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 that's that whole sentence. He cannot be my disciple. The first thing I want you to notice is Jesus is not talking to his close companions or the 12 apostles that he has called to, 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 and gave authority to proclaim the mission, demonstrating with power, his power. This call, this expectation of a disciple is meant for everyone. He says, if anyone comes to me, verse 26, no double standard, no tears of discipleship. No, you're in, I'm out in the sense of you, 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 you buy into this. I'm not really buying into this. You can't say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm not buying into all of that. It's not optional. He says, if anyone comes to me, anyone. The teaching that Jesus is telling us here and showing us here is directed to everyone. Jesus wants those who are contemplating, maybe here this morning, a relation with him to know what it means to be a disciple. There's a huge difference, an eternal difference, 
with simply saying, I'm a Christian and actually following Jesus as a disciple by name only. And to understand what Jesus is saying when he talks about hating, you need to have what they call hermeneutical skills, practices. It's, 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 it's how you interpret scripture. One of the most important hermeneutical uh, practices is have scripture interpret scripture. Okay? The scripture teaches us that God is love, 1 John. That's clear. And God who took on flesh and, and, and dwelt among us, 1 John, uh, John 1, dwelt among us, he's the embodiment of love, and his name is Jesus. He's not only the embodiment of love, but he expressed love. He taught us about love with perfect skill and execution. Even the fifth commandment tells us to honor our mothers and our fathers. It was Jesus who took that commandment to honor our mothers and fathers to call out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in Mark 7. Jesus taught us in John 13 to love as he loved, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Back in chapter 6 of Luke, he says we are to love our enemies. More than anyone else, Jesus taught us to love. So what is he saying here? You must hate members of your family, your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, your wife, your children. Well, what Jesus is using here is a Hebrew idiom, uh, hyperbole. He, he wants to capture the seriousness of his demand. In Semitic language, uh, the use of this word could mean hate actively or it could mean hate comparatively, okay? It could mean hate Actively, but it also can mean hate comparatively. By using the phrase to hate others, he means to make them such a, a, a distant second in love and priority as comparative to him than, that it seems by far, this, this comparison, way different. That's what he means by that. If anyone is called to be a disciple, it means that we ought to love the Lord Jesus far above. No comparison. To anyone else. There are other places in the Bible this comparative language is used. This hyperbole uh, is used. In Genesis, uh, we see in Genesis 29, Jacob is said to loved Rachel more than Leah. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And yet in the next verse it says that Leah was hated. In other words, is to hate is have this preferential affection towards someone. It's to love something much greater than something else. That's what Jesus is getting at. So, Jesus says, if you want to come and follow me, you want to become my disciple, the family or any other relationship cannot take the place of Christ. Otherwise, it's called idolatry. Yes, we ought to love our family. Yes, we ought to provide for our family. Yes, we ought to care for our families. But discipleship is a call to, to reprioritize them in a completely different and contrary way in which the world tells us. And if you think that's radical, and I'm sure you do, and you should. If you think that's radical today, it was much more radical in that culture, that, that familial culture of that day. In that day, and even in some cultures today, your life, your family revolved around your extended family. That's the way life was lived. Some of you are saying, you know what, this is easy, I hate my family, but that's not... That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's another sermon. We could talk about that later. In those days, there was a major obligation to the importance of family. You did everything around what was good for everyone. You never disgraced your family. You didn't move away from your family. You married someone that your family uh, uh, wanted you to marry. In fact, at, at the time that this was written, 
a Jewish person who made a choice for Jesus was alienated from family and rejected from family. Today, people simply name only associate with Christ because it's culturally appropriate or whatever reason. Such a decision like that was not possible in the first century. And even some today. I read this week in the Charlotte Observer newspapers, December, three months ago, 2023. This is the article. Three family members were arrested after the son said they, son said they beat him for being a Christian, according to uh, Tennessee police. Police conducted a welfare check on a Nashville home shortly before midnight, December 11th, following a request from a juvenile's boy's employer. A Metropolitan Nashville Police Department officer found the boy wide-eyed, disheveled, and trembling with a cut along the back of his hand, unevenly cut hair, and lumps on his face. The boy told police he had recently become a Christian, and his Muslim family attacked him over his decision. During the alteration, the boy said his family demanded he recant and say he was a Muslim. He said his brother, mother, and father repeatedly punched him and spit in his face. Then his mother scratched or cut the back of his hand with a knife, according to police. The boy said this continued until police arrived at the home in southeast Nashville. He was then taken to the hospital. End quote. Some of this following Jesus means going against our family desires over religious beliefs, maybe to be baptized as a Christ follower. This may be giving of your time and your giftedness and your finances to the work of the kingdom at the rejection of your family. But for others, it could mean severe abuse. Some cultures, they have a funeral for you and count you as dead. Look at, verse end of, look at the end of verse 26. He even says you must hate your own life or you cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to hate your own life? It doesn't mean being filled with self-loathing or, or self-disintegration, self-disdain. If you think about it, even that is somewhat self-centered, self-absorption. You cho- it's all about your needs, your sense of failure, how people see you. No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying that disciples, his disciples, and we'll see this more in a, in a minute, is living a cross-centered life that's founded on the work of Jesus. A cross-centered life looks like self-forgetfulness, not self-disdain, not self-loathing. A cross-centered life is basing your life, basing your identity around Christ, his mission, his purpose, his person. That brings joy because now you could say, you know what? I have nothing to prove. I'm in Christ. I belong to him. I know who I am. Therefore, I can endure reproach. I can endure uh, a rejection. I, I can endure not getting that job. My life is hidden in Christ. I'm going to live in the shadows of the cross and, and find my identity and my purpose in who Christ is and the mission he's on. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. If you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, a genuine disciple hates his family by loving Jesus more than anything else in his or her life, in his or her world. There are places where Jesus, what's interesting about this text too, there are places, and we've talked about this before, the priority of, of, of Jesus you know, having him first place and, and having him as the number one priority. And that, that's part of the text here, obviously. But there's more. And I want you to see this. What Jesus is saying, actually saying is, I want love. I want relationship, communion, our union to be one of affection 
deep affection and love. I want you to have a sense of my embrace and my delight and my love for you. And I want you to see that love. I want you to love. I want to have this relationship, this highest affection toward me as I love you. For our love for him must be so great and so pervasive that the natural love for, uh, for ourselves, our family, pales in comparison to our love of Christ. Subordinate everything, even our own being, to the love and to commitment of Jesus Christ. I, I didn't say this. I'm the mailman delivering the news. This is what Jesus is saying. And by the way of application, this is hard. Mom, dads, love your children good. Love them more than Jesus. Right? I mean, that, that is your job, your, your kids, your marriage, your grandchildren, or any other relationship, your looks, your portfolio, your, your power, your influence. All those things can have a greater pull on our ultimate affection and ultimate love than Jesus. Again, this is not about receiving salvation. This is what it means to live it out. One cannot follow Jesus, walk with him as his disciples, if other relationships are pulling you. Other relationships have greater love and affection than Christ. He must precede all that. That's what Jesus is saying. Dr. Tim Keller wrote this quote. Uh, and this quote of Dr. Keller. I, I love the quote, and you've got to really listen carefully. He says this, The love of Jesus Christ has to be so real to you, the love of Jesus Christ has to be so real to you, that it eclipses these other things. In other words, you don't love anything too much. You love Jesus Christ too little in relationship to them. End quote. See what he's saying? Not that we despise our parents, detest our parents, children, spouses, relationship, but the devotion, the affection we have, to Je we have for Jesus must be greater, far greater than family and friends and relationships, whatever we have. Loving Jesus. Verse 27. Yeah, we bear our own cross. In other words, we live our life out in submission to Jesus Christ. Whoever does not, there's that word again, bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus doesn't say, in other places he alludes to it, but here he's not saying take my teaching, my example, my advice and follow me. He's not telling them to take up his cross, right? Can't do that. There's only been one sacrifice offered for sin. There's only one sacrifice that saves us, and that sacrifice is Jesus Christ himself. So he's not asking us to bear his, his cross. He's also not saying, family, man, I know you have a tough mother-in-law or father-in-law. Like, that's your cross to bear. Like, that's not what it means. We like to throw that around. That's really an affront to what the Scripture is really teaching us. One commentator, Norval uh, Geldings, the general idea that these words of Jesus about bearing the cross refers to passive submission to all kinds of affliction, like disappointment, pain, sickness, and grief that come from life, is totally wrong. The people to whom Jesus spoke these words fully realized that he meant thereby that whosoever desires to follow him must be willing to hate his own life and even to be crucified by the Roman authorities for the sake of his fidelity to Christ, end quote. In other words, cross-bearing doesn't, doesn't mean just ordinary suffering, but suffering and, and the rejection that we endure 
for the very reason that we are followers of Christ, because of a relationship with him. That's what Jesus is saying. Again, let me, let, let me reiterate. What is emphasizing here is the process, the course, the direction, the route of discipleship, not how to receive salvation. And we know that partly because, not only the rest of Scripture, but the phrase here in our text, in this, in this verse, bear his own cross and come after me, are both present tense verbs. In other words, it's ongoing. Ongoing action. Whoever is not bearing, nor is not coming after me, cannot be my disciple. It's a series of a walk, a journey uh, of deaths, of perpetual dying to self, following a path, a continued path of self-denial, embracing suffering that comes your way as part of life, living life for Christ. A disciple, a follower of Jesus, must recognize that bearing his own cross, walking in Jesus' footsteps, means identifying with him, embracing him, and embracing all of the life that you will encounter because of him. That's what that means. Is the willingness to endure persecution, rejection, reproach, shame, martyrdom, if, possible, if need be, for the sake of Christ. You see, if we define our own identity, if we define ourselves and our own identity by, by what we do and our abilities and our gifts and our talents of ourselves, no matter how good it is, we're denying the need to pick up the cross and to follow Jesus. If your purpose, if my purpose in this life is, is what you want and what I want, and when Jesus comes along and his purpose and his mission and we ignore it, you're not his disciple, you name only. Your, your purposes are the end and Jesus becomes the means to your ends. You're using him to fulfill what you want. That's not bearing the cross. But when you recognize who Jesus is and what Jesus uh, uh, has done and the obligation of walking with him and realize that he's king of kings, he's lord of lords, he is the reigning, ruling, sovereign over the universe. You don't come to him negotiating, or worse, demanding your own agenda. How do you come to a king? On bowed knee. On bowed knee, the sword pointing toward you, saying, command me, king. That, that's the way you come to a king. When he says, you must be a cross-bearer, he's saying, die to self-determination. Die to the control of your own life. Die to using me to fulfill what you want. Again, Keller loves to say, and I've heard him say it many times, religious people find God useful. Gospel people find him beautiful. End quote. Is Jesus youthful? Is Jesus beautiful? Is Jesus an add-on, or is he our first love? And notice again, whoever... Right? He says, his only kind of disciple is bearing his own cross. Remember, the word disciple means learner. So we're going to learn from Jesus. We're going to walk with Jesus. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to experience some of what he experienced. Of course, not uh, wrath-absorbing sacrifice, but we're going to experience rejection and persecution and suffering, all that the world will bring toward us because of our commitment of Christ. And we're prepared. We're learning. We're walking with Jesus. Now, Jesus explains now two, he gives us two very simple illustrations to help us understand what he's saying. Look at, the, look at them. Number one is the picture involved the building of, of what's probably a, a watchtower for a vineyard. Um, you see that in verse 28. Uh, maybe, it's a, maybe it was a, a tower being built for military reasons. We don't know. But in order to accomplish this task, you got to what? Figure it out. Carefully plan what needs to be done. What's the cost? Otherwise, the builder's going to build, and you know what? It's not going to get done. He's going to run out of money, and it won't be finished. 
Failure to finish, we see in verse 29 and verse 30, he's, a, he's being mocked, he's a laughing stock to the neighbor as this, as this tower is just sitting there half done. The person says, I want to follow Jesus, it's just by just verbal announcement, but yet not really walking with Jesus, it makes, him, makes a fool out of himself. So Jesus says, no, you know what? Sit down, estimate the cost, see if you have enough money to complete what which you started. In a book by Blake Ship, a, a book called Counting the Cost, he tells a story how following the success of a 1997 Mars Pathfinder lander, NASA, after that success, planned to have these series of scientific missions to planet Mars, intending to launch a, a mission to Mars every two years. And their motto was this, faster, better, cheaper. Things didn't go so well with NASA as they planned. In December 1999, the Mars Polar Lander failed to slow on its descent into, uh, onto the red planet and slammed into the surface, smashing it into a thousand pieces. Later, it was determined that a flaw, a design flaw, in the $165 million spacecraft has been found out. It caused the braking system to shut off too soon. According to the engineers, the flaw, this flaw could have been detected and prevented if only they had run the right simulation on their computers. Right? Why? Why didn't they run the right simulation? NASA was trying to cut costs and decided not to purchase the necessary software. They have done it cheaper, but it wasn't better. The Mars lander crashed because the administration failed to count the cost for completing that mission. And the implication is the same when one considers being discipled. They would do well to sit. Maybe you're here this morning. Think it through. What you started. Now, salvation, redemption, is by grace alone. It is a free gift of God. But following Jesus costs us everything. In other words, salvation costs you nothing. Discipleship will cost you everything. That's what it says. And, and I want to be really clear here on this point. They are not two completely separate events. The free gift of salvation, the obligation of disciples are two sides of the same coin. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, by grace, through faith, in Christ, you're a disciple of Christ, and you are called to walk and obligated to walk in the path of Jesus. Hand in hand, one coin, two sides. Verse 31, king finds out he's outnumbered, he's going to battle. I only got 10,000 soldiers. Last time I counted, they got 20. You better think long and hard. Am I going to do this? I mean, maybe you've got Captain America or somebody else, you know, we could do it. But you know what? If I can't win, you know what? I'm going to send someone out because I, I, have, uh, I want some peace. I, I don't want to get into this because I'm not going to win. You see, both par parables and illustrations emphasize the necess necessity of, of evaluating, careful evaluating, sitting down, taking time, thinking it through. What, what's Jesus saying to me? The two parables, though, although they are very much alike, they're a little different if you notice. The builder was free to, to build or not. The king don't have a choice. There's a marching army of 20,000 coming against him. He's got to do something. 
One commentator wisely said, in the first parable, Jesus says, sit down and reckon whether you can afford to follow me. In the second parable, he says, sit down and reckon whether you can afford to refuse my demand. (laughs) Cost of discipleship, the cost of non-discipleship. One's an embarrassment and the other one is destruction. Can we afford to follow Jesus? That's the first one. Can we afford not to follow Jesus? Is the second one. You know, everything we do, the meaning of anything, we got to count the cost. And Jesus is illustrating for what it means to be his disciple. Jesus is not, not only is he not doing a bait and switch, but he's not trying to discourage like, yeah, you better not. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's just being honest. Brutally honest and truthful what it means to be his disciple. He's warning those who are flippantly following or saying they're following in a moment of a cultural correctness, emotional reaction, and not realize what it means to answer the call. It's a warning, family. It's a warning to those who want to name the name of Jesus as Savior, but really their heart is far from the world. I pray that the Holy Spirit reveals that to you, grants you life, the cost, letting go of Jesus. Loving Jesus, living for Jesus, letting go for Jesus. When by grace, through faith, Jesus calls us onto himself, we must be ready to give up anything and everything for him. That's what it means to count the cost, verse 33. So therefore, the thing I just said, any one of you, who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who has renounced everything to follow Jesus, that's the only kind. That's the only kind. Any one of you, renounce, that's the disciple. I'm not quite sure what the prosperity false teachers, shysters I like to call them, do with this passage. Because the essence of disciples is to choose to renounce all our possessions, to ally ourselves, align ourselves, or ally oneself totally with Jesus. He's the object of focus. He's the object of our love and our affection. Following Jesus means being attached to him, not our things, not our possessions. So family, what is it in your life? What are the things in your life that you clutch tightly in your hands that's keeping you? keeping you from following Jesus the way he demands to be followed. I had a pastor once tell me, the tighter you hold your stuff, the tighter you hold your possessions, the more it hurts when God rips it from our hands. It was St. Augustine, 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 who said that all people, listen, All people seek happiness, seek love. It is not the seeking of love that's the problem. It is the seeking of love in all the wrong places. (laughs) Isn't that true? He puts it like this. He said, the problem is a disordered love. For Augustine, the problem was not love or loving per se. He knew that we were made in the Imago Dei, in the triune God who is love. Rather, the problem arises in loving things in the wrong way, particularly in the method and in the expectations we have in love, in the object that we love, in relation to the order and value of the object of love. In other words, love in relation to others outside of God is limited. Listen, is limited in its scope. 
It can only do so much. We cannot expect more from it than its limited nature will provide for us. Love is disordered when it, when, it, when it seeks ultimate happiness, ultimate joy in temporal, listen, temporal and finite objects. We're not created like that. We always bear the mark of our creator. In our nature, in the Amago day, we were made in such a way that only God can provide the ultimate satisfaction, ultimate happiness and joy that will fill a human heart. To love God and to be loved by God is then the indispensable requirement for joy. Deep longings of the heart because only God who is infinite can satisfy this unique need in humanity, the, the need for the infinite. And that's by God alone. Augustine was right. We must discern, we, me and you, we must discern between what human relationships can give us, what what possessions can and should give us and what the ultimate relationship with God was designed to give us. To mix that up is toxic. One is idolatry, the other one will lead to orderly love, to love Christ first and all the other things will flow from it. We saw that in Luke. We saw that in chapter 5. Simon, Peter, James, and John, even Levi left everything to follow Jesus. Twice Jesus tells people to sell their possessions, distribute to the poor. Disciples in chapter 12 and then a rich young ruler when we get a rich young man in chapter 18. That's the basics of following Jesus. He must be more important than our possession, more important than our stuff. Loving him more than material things. We must be, those things must be subservient to his purposes, his glory, and his mission. And family, we know this. It, it, it's not about the stuff itself. It's not the amount of things you possess. Not how much money you have. That's not really the heart of the issue. The, the stuff we have must never have power over us. Nothing should have power over our hearts than the love of Christ, the mission of Christ, the glory of Christ. Jesus is not saying you can't own anything. You, you, you can't have material blessings. You can't have anything material in this life. What he's saying is what you have is and should be and needs to be subservient to him. Not your ultimate satisfaction or your security. It has to be in Christ and Christ alone. In other words, if you're my disciple, you will not love anything more than me. You won't love any material thing more than me. And there will be no stuff in your life that outdoes your love and your loyalty to me. So we ask ourselves, are we, have we, have we, or do we regularly need to go back to this text? I think we do. Have we given ourselves totally over all that we are, all that we have, all our relationships over and subservient to Christ. I need to hear this too. Verse 34. Salt's good, but if, it's, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, in those days, salt functioned as a fertilizer, as seasoning, as a preservative. While it was salty, obviously it was good. It had a value. It had a purpose. Once the salt lost its saltiness, it was of no value, and it was of no use. So how, how does salt lose its saltiness? Well, today, when you, you know, go home, you're using salt. That's pure sodium chloride, and it doesn't lose saltiness. 
But in those days, the salt that they used in those days mainly came from Palestine. Um, uh, the salt came from uh, evaporated pools by the Dead Sea. And it was mixed, though. That's, that's the difference. It was mixed with other minerals. So when they had the salt, when, it, when, when moisture came into the salt, it, what it did was it, it, it evaporated the salt. It, it, it left the impurities, and it looked like salt, but the salt was gone. But you wouldn't know that because it looks like salt. But it lost its saltiness, and then it was thrown away. So it was a mixture. Jesus is warning this crowd what a false form of discipleship may look like. It's like salt that has been dissolved by moisture that only leaves a, a zestless pile of waste. Not worth it. A salty disciple is when, when Jesus is our first love. Far above all other loves. It's walking the path that, that Jesus is walking. Well, we will encounter rejection and suffering. And in those days, possible death. But, but our love and our loyalty is to Christ alone. A genuine, salty disciple lets, lets go of everything you have and submits it to Christ. You belong and you are bound to Jesus. Therefore, your possessions of this world no longer possess you. As salt of the earth, we're to, to spread the good news of the gospel, serving others, showing love of God to others, embracing, enriching, and enhancing the lives of others we come in contact with, a life that reflects God's standard, and, and, and living in such a good way that all that you do, all the deeds that you do, the Bible says, that give glory to God, your Father in heaven. And therefore, as hard as this is, a disciple does not love Jesus more than anything else, is not a disciple he lost his saltiness. There's no part in the kingdom. A disciple that's not willing to carry his cross daily to death, to self-centered, rather, self-interest, is not a disciple. There's no saltiness, no part of the kingdom, the banquet of God. A disciple does not give everything over to Jesus, not a disciple. There's no saltiness. You're not part of the kingdom. You're not invited to the kingdom banquet. However difficult and hard these sayings are, it's coming not from me. It's coming from the lips of Jesus. And the warning is for us to sit up, family, and pay attention. Look what he ends with. He who has ears, and I hope all of you do, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are you following Jesus? Are you looking, looking, and working, and, and, and just loving him more and more every day? No one does it perfect. But a genuine disciple hears these words. This is how I'm convinced. They know this to be true, right? They know this to be true. No, we don't do it all the time, but I know I need to love Jesus more. I need to love him above all else. I'm willing to suffer ridicule and rejection, and sometimes I run from it, but I, I know this is what I'm supposed to do. Knowing that there's nothing in this world that we hold on to, that everything is not permanent, but Jesus is, and by the power and the, of the Holy Spirit and the pursuit of, of the gospel, we're growing in love. We're learning what it means to have our greatest affection upon him and him alone. We're making self renunciation, sacrifice for the glory of God and for the good of others. We know. But how do we walk this way? How, how do we make this a regular, consistent walk and path to follow Jesus? The way of discipleship, family, don't lose me here, is the gospel. You see, the King and the Savior who calls us to walk in this manner, the very Savior himself counted the cost of his own obedience. Jesus knew that he would be rejected and mocked and betrayed. He knew he would suffer, he would die a God-forsaken death, an agonizing death. 
Long before he ever went to the cross, Jesus counted the cost and determined that he would die. A substitutionary wrath-absorbing death to pay the penalty for your sins, my sins. He set his face toward Jerusalem, determined to continue on his way until he finished what he came to do. The agony of the cross, both body and soul. Therefore, family, if you walk away with anything, walk away with this. The way to love Jesus as our ultimate sacrifice, excuse me, ultimate satisfaction. The way to love Jesus as our ultimate satisfaction, greatest treasure, deepest affection, is to do three things. Drink deeply, rehearse regularly, and remember the truth of the gospel. Why should we love Jesus above all else? Drink deeply of the gospel. Drink of the one who lived the perfect life. A holy and unblemished life. A life you were commanded to live, but you could never live. There's no person, there's no relationship in your life that lived that perfect life, that died an atoning death for your sin. No one. Romans 5. God showed his love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ, much, much more now we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He takes the death we deserve. He takes the wrath and penalty we deserve and dies for our sins. Why should we pick up our cross and follow him? Listen, we need to rehearse the gospel. That no person and no relationship in your life has picked up his cross and suffered the physical torture of rejection and crucifixion, agonizing pain, but more so than just physical pain. He was abandoned, we see in Matthew, by the Father. As God poured down his justice pouring out his wrath upon injustice, our sin, our folly, our rebellion, our shame. Christ suffered beyond comprehension. It's on the cross in Matthew 27, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, this uninterrupted, loving, uninterrupted intimacy with the Father for a moment was lost. The very real forsakenness was far more far more excruciating than any physical torture could be. The gospel is, Jesus is forsaken that we can be embraced. Jesus is cast out so we can be brought in. Jesus is rejected so we can be welcomed. Drink deeply. Rehearse regularly. And lastly, remember often the truth of the gospel. Again, no person, no relationship in your life that gave, us, gave up the greatest amount of possessions in order to give you the greatest riches of life and eternal life. From face to face with the Father in glory, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us this. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, face to face with the Father in glory, yet for your sake, for my sake, he became poor. He came down to this broken world so that by his poverty, his coming, you might become rich. You see that? The gospel, the indescribable rich gift of God, in the gospel, we are fed, we are clothed, we are filled, we are forgiven. He takes our filthy rags and puts around us his robe of righteousness. When you come to Jesus Christ, you're a, you're a pauper, you're in the spiritual realm. Our hands are empty, our pockets are bare, we have nothing to offer, no claim. But now, because of the gospel, the gift of grace, I was poor, but now I'm rich. Forgiven, accepted into God's family. 
Jesus is the indescribable gift Paul talks about, the ultimate treasure. Why? Listen, family. Because every other gift, every other earthly treasure you have to buy, Jesus is the only gift, the only treasure that purchased you. That's the gospel. Drink deeply, rehearse regularly, remember often the gospel. And that's what this table's about as the band comes up. It's a, we, we do this not simply for a reminder, although it is that Jesus invites us to the table. He is here by the power of his presence of the Holy Spirit to invite us to come to the table, to remember his death. The bread represents his body that was broken. Blood represents the blood. The, the cup represents the blood that he shed for the cross. Family, you are just like me. We are, we are together on this. We need to be reminded regularly, rehearsing regularly, remember regularly, drinking deeply of the cross. That God would go to such great lengths to save a rebel, rebel like you and like me. And that he loves you so much, as Keller would say, that he was glad to. That will keep our hearts in greater love for Jesus than anything else. That will help us when we're being persecuted for Christ. And that will help us release the things we have and submit it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you trusted Christ? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this table is for you. You come. This band's going to play. We're going to come down the aisles, grab the elements, and sit down. We're going to have a time of reflection, a time of prayer. It's a time of repenting. It's a time of, um, of acknowledging. It's a time of, and then celebrating the death of Christ. But if you're here this morning, and you, you know what? It's by name only, but today's the day. The Holy Spirit is showing you. Today's the day. It's not what you do. It's what Christ has done for you. But know what Christ is calling you to. It's glorious. It's end, eternal life, eternal bliss, eternal joy with our King. Band's going to play. We'll get our elements. We'll spend some time confessing and repenting. And then I'll come up and lead us through the eating of the elements. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you that it is by grace alone and by the power of your spirit that we can walk in this path with our Savior. God, we pray for everyone here. That those who know and love you will spend time in areas of their lives as I will. We just got to reorient it again. Again and again and again and again until we're home with you in glory. But Father, we pray for those who are here that have not truly turned from their sins and trusted you. We pray, Father, that you would show them how great and awesome and beautiful Jesus is. How wicked and sinful and rebellious they are. But yet you at the cross, Lord Jesus, have paid the penalty for our sins and embraced us, pouring out your love and forgiveness on us. For justice is met. And then we look at the empty tomb and we see sacrifice accepted. Oh God, please have your way with us. Holy Spirit, work in our lives. Help us, Lord, as we take up communion together to repent, to believe, to celebrate the work of Jesus. And may we walk with him faithfully by the power of your spirit each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.